Good morning. We have, uh, on Sunday mornings, been kind of working our way through, uh, through the story of the Bible by looking at individuals who appear from time to time as the story is being told. And uh, we've been looking at some of their call stories, some of the things that they were called to do by God, that they were sent to do. Sometimes they were sent uh, to go afar and to go do something incredible. Sometimes uh, they found out that where they were is where they had been sent to be, uh, because God had a mission and a purpose for them right there. But we've looked at quite a few, and we've looked at a wide variety of these different types of call stories. And sometimes the call story is uh, rather direct. Um, you know, you're standing there and all of a sudden there's a burning bush and you have to go listen to it and it's going to talk to you and God is there. And you know, like that's, that's a pretty direct call story. Uh, some of the call stories are, are much less direct, like David with respect to, to Goliath. You know, there wasn't a, a divine message or a burning bush or an angel that told him to go into the fight, but he knew what he was called to do because he heard what Goliath was saying. He saw the need and he knew that he could rise up to do it. And so I think sometimes we, uh, when we talk about call stories, when we talk about being called, there's, there's so, like if you read the religious literature on being called, whether it's being called into ministry or being called into these different things, you'll see all kinds of different uh, expectations and uh, experiences and, and all sorts of things. Um, sometimes people are expecting it to be like a big miraculous thing. Sometimes it's recognizing the gift that perhaps God has given you and, uh, and what, uh, what the needs are around you. And I'm convinced that if we will open our eyes and ears and look around, that each one of us can find areas that we're called to serve. Each one of us can find ways in which God could use us. Uh, I believe that God does still call us into his service. I believe everyone is called through the gospel. And even within that, there are ways that you as an individual are called to serve here at this local body, serve here in this community, and serve God wherever you are. And again, I don't think that, you know, sometimes we have crossroads in our lives. Sometimes we have decisions we need to make where it's, I could either go this way or I could go this way. I, I'm offered a job over here in this city and I can take that or I could stay here. And we want to discern what God's will is because we don't know which direction we're being called to go. And we don't know what God can do with us. And, and I do believe that there is tremendous value in prayer and in meditation and thoughtful listening and in reading of scripture and in talking to other people. I think all of that should be done. But I also think perhaps we should take a little bit of a, uh, of a, of a deep breath and rest a little bit easier knowing that I don't think that we're going to be able to destroy God's plans for us because of a decision like that. What I mean is I think God can use you where you are. I think if you are in Maryville, Tennessee, or if you're in California, or if you're in uh, Ghana, uh, uh, if you're in Ghana, West Africa, like no matter where you are, God could use you. And there's work to do if you'll open your eyes and open your ears and look around. And so I want to encourage you to know that wherever you are, which is right here right now, uh, you're called to the service of the king and he can use you. And, uh, and so be aware of that and be willing to accept that call. So for the lesson this morning, we're going to look at a king who, uh, who found himself called to do some pretty radical things. Before we get to him, though, we're going to kind of rewind and uh, tell the story of the Old Testament a little bit as it builds up to him. Uh, we're going to start all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28, 
where Moses records a lengthy list of blessings and curses. Um, the blessings are what are in store for Israel and her future. God has already freed them from Egypt. They've gone through the wilderness. They're about to enter the land that God had promised hundreds of years earlier to Abraham. Like, like they are, it's like Christmas Eve, you know, it's, it, they have been longing for this day for a long time, and they're right on the verge of being able to get it. And before they go into the promised land, Deuteronomy, we hear the wonderful, tremendous, glorious blessings that God has in store for them if they remain part of his covenant. God has chosen them, Israel, the people who were slaves in Egypt, to be his freed own covenant people. And he gave them the Torah, the law, so that they could know how to have wisdom and know how to live well and know how to shine as lights among the other nations so that the other nations could see their goodness and see the goodness of God through them. And God was calling them to be a unique representative of him. And he gave his name to them for them to bear as they lived in the land that God gave them. And there are wonderful blessings in store. There is good harvest and good crops and a wonderful land and military protection and all of these wonderful blessings. And then you find out that there's also repercussions if you don't keep the covenant. If you decide, you know what, we're going to go out on our own, God's going to say, okay, you can do that. You are free to choose to reject the covenant and to go out and to do things your own way. But if you do that, you will lose the divine protection that I'm offering you. Like, that's part of the covenant. And if you decide you want another god, we'll let that god protect you. And you know what happens when those other gods try, that are made of wood and stone try to protect you? Um, when Assyria comes and knocking, you, you can't really stand up to them. When the other nations decide that they want your produce, you can't really stop them from taking it. They're really powerful. And when drought comes, no one's there to save you and protect you through it. And all of a sudden, you start reading the cursings, and you realize... Wow, there's a lot of terrible stuff that's in store if they don't listen to God. If they reject him and they try to strike out on their own or they try to do things with other gods, they're going to be in for a really rough time. Because, I mean, most nations did have a rough time. It's not like, like in the ancient world, unless you were Babylon or Assyria at the height of their empire, you were likely being destroyed. Uh, you know, that, that, that's just how it worked. And you likely uh, had to pay tremendous tribute or taxes in order for that not to happen. Like it was pretty violent and empires would grow and then they'd be conquered and then another empire would grow. And God promised Israel protection through that as part of his people. But if they tried to get involved in that, uh, that arms race with the, all the nations around them, they would be destroyed. They wouldn't last. Well, you watch the story of Israel and uh, what happens time and time again is they decide to do things on their own. They decide to ignore the covenant that they made with God. They decide to ignore the Torah. They decide to ignore his divine protection and grace and goodness. And they go out on their own. And they'll go after other gods. They would go after the gods of the Canaanites who used to live there in the land. They would go after the gods of their neighbors. They'd go after the Egyptian gods. They'd go after Babylonian gods. They went after all kinds of different gods. And when that would happen, the people would then realize, hey, we're being oppressed by this foreign nation and God's not saving us. What's the deal here? And uh, the period of the judges is that story happening over and over again where the people would go after other gods or they'd go after things on their own way and then they would realize, hey, the Moab has come in here and they've made us their slaves. God, save us. And God's like, I thought, I thought you didn't want me to be your God anymore. Then they would cry out to him for help and he would save them. And he would save them over and over and over again. There are... There are 
like countless cycles throughout the Bible of them turning away from God and then them getting into a real bad situation and then calling out to him and him graciously saving them again. It's really a testament to the patience and to the grace of God. It's amazing what God constantly does uh, when the people call out to him and what God still does. It's like when we look at our own lives, it's easy for us to sit back and fold our arms and look at Israel and shake our heads as to how they could be so foolish, but I am pretty well aware of my own life, and I know that I fall into that same cycle over and over and over again as well, and I bet some of you can relate. Um, we, we end up, when things are going well, we try to do things our own way because we think, hey, things are going well, so I don't, I don't need God anymore. But then all of a sudden when things get hard, we realize, oh, I need some help. And so we call out to him. And, uh, you know, the same thing is true. You know, there's, uh, you can take a medication for something and that medication is helping you feel better. But then once you're feeling better, you're like, what am I taking medication for? I feel fine. So you stop taking the medication. All of a sudden you stop feeling good. And uh, you're like, what happened? Oh, I know. Uh, I think that same thing can happen in our walk with God. And, uh, and so it's important to stay plugged in to, uh, to our relationship with him. So the story continues. You have this period of judges where there's a lot of ups and downs, mostly downs. Uh, it's a pretty rough period. If you read the book of Judges, uh, you know, buckle up. You're going to read a rough book. There's a lot of tough things in there. Um, but then you get to the books of First and Second Samuel, and the children of Israel are done with the judges. And they say, we don't want judges ruling us anymore. We want a human king of our own. But they're not actually rejecting the judges, per se. The judges were merely representatives of the one true king of Israel, who was God. And when they say we want a different king, what they're saying is we don't really want God to be our king anymore. We want a human king. We want a king like all these other nations have, because that king can give them protection. It's like, you didn't have a king when you were freed from Egypt. I mean, you, I, you did, but he wasn't a human king, and he did a pretty good job protecting you then. Like, you you're not supposed to say, ah, oh, human, now he'll be able to be a better warrior. Put your trust in God. That's what Israel was called to do. But they don't, and again, God lets them. He says, okay, you want a human king? We'll go that route, and we'll see how it goes. And so they get Saul. Saul's not very good. Uh, he gets replaced with David. David actually is more or less pretty good. Uh, David does a good job as king. Uh, towards the end of his reign, David ends up letting being king get to his head, and he ends up making some really bad decisions that harm him and harm the nation. Uh, but then the, the, the kingdom is passed along to Solomon, and Solomon uh, has some tremendous wisdom, and he starts off promising, but then he ends up acting like a king, and he ends up getting like 300 wives and 700 concubines, all of whom, uh, uh, you know, they worship other gods, and they're from different places, so he ends up letting those gods come into the land, and again, the, the land starts becoming uh, those who reject God, and that happens again. And then the nation splits in a civil war after the death of Solomon, and you have 10 tribes to the north and two tribes to the south, and they're no longer a single unified people, but in the north, they have their kings, and in the south they have their kings. And you know what all of those kings to the north are? Pretty rotten. Uh, none of them are good at all, and they each, like, like there's, there's very few bright moments in that northern kingdom. And they end up, uh, without God's covenant, without his divine protection, they end up saying, no, don't go to Jerusalem to worship him anymore. We'll put an idol in Dan and in Bethel. We'll make our own gods. We'll do things our own way. And Assyria did come. 
and Assyria wiped them out. Amos, last week we talked about Amos. He was one of the prophets to northern Israel, trying to get them to stop going this direction, warning them that Assyria is coming and you will not be able to stand. And, and so get your lives right and make some changes and turn back to the Lord and quit ripping each other off in the marketplace and, and quit uh, charging incredible prices to people who can't afford things and like trying to fix what their society had become. And they didn't fix it, and they ended up being wiped out. Uh, historically, that happened about 721, 722 B.C. Right. But then there's still that southern nation of Judah. And they last a little bit longer. They still have kings. Uh, they have these kings that uh, every once in a while, you'd get a pretty good one. For the most part, though, they were, they were pretty rotten. But one of the pretty good ones was a guy named Hezekiah. Hezekiah was king when northern Israel was getting wiped out by Assyria. He was the guy who was king in Judah, and he kept kind of looking up to, us, to the north thinking, what's going to happen uh, after they destroy them? Are they going to make their way down here? And Assyria does try to. Uh, we have records of this in both the Bible and in Assyrian records. Uh, you can see what happens. And they, uh, the Assyrian records boast that they uh, you know, surrounded Jerusalem and uh, that they trapped Hezekiah in there like a bird trapped in a cage, and, and they left him in there. But what happens is they never actually do defeat Israel or Judah. They never do defeat Hezekiah. They end up leaving before that happens. And the Assyrian records never tell you why. The Bible tells you that 185,000 Assyrians died one night. Uh, and uh, then the next morning when the rest of the army woke up, they thought, yeah, let's get out of here. Um, and, so, uh, and so you have a really interesting kind of account right there. But that's King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah did fear the Lord. He made some foolish decisions. He didn't always do the right thing, but he did fear the Lord, and he made some powerful re reforms in uh, Judah to get them worshiping God again, because they hadn't been. Then he has a son, and his son is a guy named Manasseh, and I don't think you're going to read about a worse king like anywhere than Manasseh. Manasseh is probably the most apostate, most idolatrous, most, most wicked king Israel had. Fascinating, uh, he does at like, the very end of his life turn back to the Lord, but he doesn't really seem, he seems to personally do that. He doesn't seem to make uh, any wide, sweeping, long-lasting changes in Judah for the people. But during his reign, he uh, brought all kinds of idol worship in, even like the worst kind of worship. Uh, Molech was a god that you worshipped by having your, your sons and your daughters uh, sacrificed, uh, basically burnt to death in, to this god. It was child sacrifice. Uh, Israel was never supposed to engage in that. Some of their ancient neighbors did. Um, the Manasseh brought that in to Judah. So there's a big, big problems there. Uh, he ends up having a long reign, and then he has a son named Ammon. And Ammon, we're told, continues in all the same practices of his father. So Israel, after the 55-year reign of Manasseh, and then the reign of Ammon, has just been wretched for a while now. And that's when our king is born, the one that we're going to be talking about uh, here today. His name is Josiah. Josiah, his father was a, a terrible king. His grandfather, even worse. Uh, his great-grandfather, pretty good king. So he actually has, uh, he's born at a time 
when Yahweh has long been ignored in Israel. The Torah is playing no role in the people's lives. The covenant that they made that we started off talking about back with Moses in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, where he reads the blessings and the curses, they're in the curses section right here. Uh, they have not been following God. The temple lays, lies in disrepair. Uh, instead, people are worshiping on high places. They're worshiping uh, other gods. They're worshiping to Molech, uh, and child sacrifices become part of Israel. So at this point, Israel is not uh, like monotheistic. Israel is very much a polytheistic nation. They are worshiping all kinds of gods and worshiping idols of gods. And the law of Moses and Passover, I mean, Passover was when God freed them out of Egypt and he, he made them his own people and he, he gave them a, a freedom from the burden of slavery that Egypt had been putting on them. They don't know anything about the Passover story. They haven't been celebrating Passover. They're doing things their own way, so they don't know about God. They don't know about his Passover. They don't know about his covenant or his Torah, his law. They, they're, they're doing things the way Manasseh and Ammon taught them to, and those three ways are not very good. And so now Josiah becomes king as an eight-year-old. He's eight when he takes the throne, and uh, he is called upon to rule a godless pagan nation. But you know what's unique about Josiah? Josiah actually does care about God. He seems to love God. Um, he seems to want to start doing things uh, in a better way. But I don't know if he really knows, eight years old, you know, what to do. And so a number of years pass, and he ends up, uh, during that time, deciding that he wants to repair the temple. So he gets some money together and he's giving it to the priest and he's saying, all right, start working on the temple, find out how much it is to get like, you know, better wood and better, uh, uh, you know, stuff so you can restructure this thing and we can have a nice temple to Yahweh again. Um, and so they start doing that and something really interesting happens. They find a book inside the temple. They find a book in there that uh, they didn't really know what it was. It was kind of a, an old book, and they didn't know a lot was in it. And uh, so they bring that book to Josiah, and it's read to him, and he realizes what that book is. You remember what we started off with talking about with Moses and, uh, and Deuteronomy and, and some of those things. He, it's the book of the, the Torah, the law, the book of the covenant, he calls it. Uh, and it lists the blessings and the curses. And it describes the Passover and what they're supposed to be doing when they remember God giving them freedom from slavery. And it describes this God who they're supposed to be serving. And Josiah hears this book. And he comes to realize this is a far cry from what our society actually is right now. What are we going to do about that? And so he needs to make some decisions. So we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 22. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Kings 22. Uh, the book is found. Um, the king hears it. In 2 Kings chapter 22 and verse 11. It says, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes because he realizes how far his kingdom is from what God intended it to be. And then he, uh, in verse 13, he is encouraged to go inquire of the Lord uh, uh, for me, or he, he just sends people out to go inquire of the Lord for me uh, and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. The great for great wrath of God that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So he says, look, I've read the curses 
and uh, things are going to get really, really nasty here if we don't do something uh, about what this book is telling us. Uh, by the way, we talked about Manasseh. That was kind of the final straw with Israel's walk with God. When he starts at, uh, you know, child sacrifice in Israel and in Judah, um, from that point forward, Judah wasn't going to last much longer. They were going to be destroyed by an enemy. Now, Josiah comes along before that happens, and he finds this book of the law, and what he's able to do is to forestall that. He's able to get that put off until uh, after his reign. Uh, and so he, God becomes patient again, but then what you'll end up reading is that uh, after Josiah's reign, his sons act like his father and grandfather, so things don't last long. But he does find the book of the law. He decides to go inquire about it, and they find a priestess named Hulda. Um, one thing that's interesting during this time period is you do have some, some well-known prophets, uh, or not a priestess, a prophetess, um, and you do have some well-known uh, prophets at this time. You have a, a Jeremiah, uh, who's a prophet at this time, but they find a prophetess named Hulda, and they tell her what's happened, and she tells them uh, that wrath is coming upon us if we don't make some pretty quick changes. So take this book seriously. This is a legitimate book. This is uh, actually from God. You're not being tricked here, uh, and you should probably listen to it. But then she tells uh, Josiah in chapter 22 and verse 18, towards the end of that verse, it says, regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, truly I have heard you, declares the Lord. It's like God tells Josiah, because you found the book, you listened to it, and you actually cared. It's like you, you mourned when you realized how far things have gone, and you listened that God has listened to you. You listened to God, so God has listened to you, and you will have peace in your life, and you'll be able to rest with your fathers. And so Josiah is given this great promise during his life and during his reign. But then it's time to get to work. And so what does he do? Uh, you get to chapter 3, the first three verses. He calls all the people there all of Judah, and he needs to, to get this book that he found, not just in his personal library for some reading before bed, but he needs to get this book into the ears and into the lives of all of the people that he's leading. So he calls them, and he reads the book of the law to them. And then he enters into a covenant with God and with the people that they're going to begin following. By the way, he's imitating Moses now. That's what Moses did. Like when, Moses, when we started off talking about Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and the curses, Moses is reading that to the people. And then you get to Deuteronomy 29, and he makes a covenant that they're going to follow this. Joshua does that same type of thing. Joshua will read the book of the law to the people in Joshua chapter 9. And then Joshua, at the end of the book, he makes a covenant with the people. That, you know, that famous verse that a lot of us have in our, in our houses, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's like if you want to serve the gods of your, uh, that your father served on the other side of the river or the gods of the inhabitants and in whose land you dwell, you do that. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And all the people said, well, we're going to serve him also. And they enter into a covenant together. They make this agreement. Well, Josiah is saying, I want to do that with the people. So he reads the words of the law to the people and they enter into a covenant. But covenants mean nothing 
if you're not actually going to act upon them. So 2 Kings 23, verses 4 through 20, a pretty lengthy section, is just verse after verse after verse of all of the reforms and the changes that he made in Israel. Getting out uh, the priests uh, who are uh, working with these pagan and idols and, and putting it into a lot of the pagan worship that's taking place. Uh, in chapter 23 and verse 10, it says, He also defiled Topheth, which is in the valley uh, of the son of Hinnom, by the way, that word Hinnom right there, Valley of Hinnom, um, the word, like, that, a Greek word that eventually uh, came about to describe Valley of Hinnom is the word Gehenna. Uh, that is the Greek word for hell. Uh, whenever Jesus is talking about hell, he calls it Gehenna. Uh, that literally is the Valley of Hinnom, like what that means. Basically, this valley that we're talking about where this uh, idol worship was done was such a nasty place, it became the Jewish picture of what hell actually is. And when it's described, notice what it says about the Valley of Hinnom. That no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire from Molech. You remember, uh, we talked about Molech. Uh, that's, that's who Manasseh brought in. Manasseh worshipped Molech. It's where you, you actually offer your children up. Basically, that's hell. They brought hell into Israel, into Judah. Like, that's the worst thing you could possibly imagine. And Josiah, one of the first things he's going to do is get that out of here. So he defiles those. He does away with them. He does away with uh, the offerings that are being made to, to the, the other pagan gods. And he breaks down those temples and he casts out those priests. And all of these things takes place. And then you get to uh, chapter 23 and verse 21. And this is a really cool thing. It says in verse 21, Then the king commanded all the people, saying, Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. So we've read this book. It's time for us to celebrate this Passover again. Not only are we going to get out the bad stuff, we're going to start remembering the good stuff of who God is. Uh, this is a genuine reform of Israel and of Judah. And, uh, or of Judah. Verse 22 Describing this Passover, it says, Surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. So this is something that has been neglected for far too long. And he says, we're going to have Passover again. We're going to tell the stories again. We're going to talk about what God did for us when the Egyptians came. We're going to talk about uh, the, the freedom that God has given us. We're going to have a celebration about the fact that we have this land, and it's not because of our own might, and it certainly isn't because of Molech or Baal or any of these other gods. It's because of Yahweh. And Josiah enters into the covenant. He makes the reforms. He reinstitutes the Passover. And if you look at verse 25 of chapter 23, kind of a summary of his reign as king, it says, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. It's like there wasn't a king like him before. There wasn't a king like him after. Josiah was someone who genuinely heard the call of God and answered it. What's so incredible about that is when you talk about he heard the call of God, he made tremendous like nationwide reforms, right? He was king and he made, this was a big deal. This changed everyone's lives. But what was his call? What, what was it? Was it a burning bush moment? You don't get any burning bush type of story here. 
you get that he wants to start doing some repairs on the temple because there was a need and he took action. And while he's there, he finds a book. Or while, while the people working are, they find a book and they bring it to him. And, and he reads it and he comes to realize, wow, there's some changes we need to be making in our lives. And so then he goes and he discusses what he read in the book with, with a, a prophetess, uh, with someone who can give him some divine insight here. And I guess that's going to be your closest thing to a, a burning bush moment here. But what you have is you have someone who is trying to do the will of God because he sees a need for it. He's taking the word of God very seriously when he finds it. And he wants to know how to apply it. And he takes it to people who can help him understand it and know how to apply it. He takes it to the religious community. There's still a prophetess there who is still doing the will of God, even though no one else is. Even though everyone else is pagan, she is still doing the will of God. and She still speaks for God. And Josiah says, I'm going to go to her and I'm going to learn from her about how to do this. And so he has uh, the divine insight from her. And then he goes and he says, I want to encourage other people to join with me in this. So he makes a covenant with all of the people, and then he actually acts upon it. He doesn't just say it's a good idea to read your Bible. He, he then starts getting rid of the idolatry that's in Judah, and he actually institutes Passover again. I think what we're getting is a model for, in our own lives, uh, how we can make important changes that need to be made, and you don't always need a burning bush to tell you to do that. Sometimes loving God and taking his word seriously and discussing it and learning about it from your community, from the people who have lived out faithfully before you is a really, really good place to start. And sometimes looking at, at what you need to, uh, to change in your life and actually getting rid of some of the bad and starting to act upon some of the good, those are some of the changes that we can make that actually will change us. And a lot of times they won't only change us, they'll change the people next to us. They'll change the people closest to us. They'll change even, what's incredible about this, is he changes even what God had planned. Because God, because of Manasseh, was bringing Judah to an end. But then because of Josiah's reign, that was put off. Uh, I wonder what would happen if the next king would have acted like Josiah. And then maybe the next king. And then maybe the next king. Maybe, maybe it could have kept being put off. Maybe it wouldn't have happened. Um, what we also see, though, is that as awesome as Josiah was at making these changes, um, ultimately, he could control what he could control, but he can't control what he can't control. Uh, after he's gone, he can't control what future generations do, and Babylon eventually does come in. Babylon does destroy the temple that Josiah helped to, to restore. Uh, Babylon does take the people captive, and they, that Babylon does put an end to, to the monarchy in Israel. Uh, eventually, they return back home, uh, but they're always a subjugated people pretty much from that point forward. But Josiah was like the last bright spot before that happened, and it's because he took the call of God seriously. Um, he didn't let his parents in the way that they acted, determine what was right and wrong. He didn't let culture around him and what everyone else was doing religiously and in their pro determine what was right and wrong. He made a stand for the will of God because that's what was right. And he's remembered for that. Um, sometimes I think we can fall into a temptation of getting so comfortable going with the flow of how we were raised or of uh, the culture in which we live that we won't act upon what we know to be right because it's hard and because it's uncomfortable and because you're stepping out into the unknown when you do that. 
Josiah had to step out into the unknown. That's why he, that's why he met with Huldah. He, he needed some guidance here. Uh, but he stepped out into the unknown, and he did it. And he did it as best as he could, and God was pleased. If you want to please God, I would encourage you to do the same thing. Uh, if there's anyone here this morning who would like to step out and become a Christian this morning, if there's anyone here who would like to take seriously the call of God through the gospel and name Jesus as Lord of your life, having your sins washed away in baptism, now is a really good time to do it. Uh, you can either come forward here, you can go meet with one of our elders in the back, but I would also say if there is a need that you're aware of, that you've been thinking, I should help with that, or thinking it would be a good idea if maybe I went to that, or I participated in that, or I helped with that, or I served in this way, do it. Take advantage of that initiative within you and act upon it. Maybe God put it there for a reason. Answer the call of God. If we can help you do that, please come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.